Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters, a bi-weekly podcast featuring in-depth conversations with and about the creators of lyrics and music that stand the test of time. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. Songcraft is part of the American Songwriter Podcast Network, which can be found at americansongwriter.com. To make sure you don't miss an episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our show via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also keep up with us on social media by searching for one word, Songcraft Show, or visit us at songcraftshow.com. You're listening to Confluence, an instrumental track from the album Revolutionary Love by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Ani DeFranco. The nine-time Grammy nominee will join us in a few moments to talk about her career as a fiercely independent singer-songwriter and activist and give us some insights into the social, political, and personal challenges that inspired her honest but hope-filled new studio album. Today's episode is brought to you by the fine folks at Pearl Snap Studios, the only place for you to go to take your song and have it turned into a quality pitchable recording. And that's not just advertising speak, Scott. It is literally the only place <laughs> that you can take a song these days and get it demoed. Well, I'm it's pretty probably, confident in that fact. It's probably the only place that you can get the kind of quality that Justin and his team delivers uh, for the cost. And in fact, not only are Justin's rates really reasonable, he even has a discount for Songcraft listeners. So if you are an aspiring songwriter or maybe even a songwriter, who's got a little success under your belt, but you need some good quality pitchable demos or maybe something you're not even looking to pitch. You just want to have great recordings of your songs to show off to your friends and brag about your songwriting skills. Justin is your guy. Yeah, and if none of that sways you, listen to this. It's the only place... That you can go and get a demo recorded. All right, we'll just go with that. It's the only place. There's no other place to get a demo recorded. So if you want a demo, a very professional sounding demo, I might add, of one of your songs or a whole bunch of your songs, go to pearlsnapstudios.com and tell them that Songcraft sent you. Otherwise, you, you will not get this demo recorded. It will not be made. And you want this demo made. Part one. Well, Scott, I don't know when people are going to be listening to this podcast, but for you and I, it's Martin Luther King Day. Um, and that is something we're going to spend some time uh, discussing uh, on this episode. Uh, before we get into that, uh, we also kind of have to acknowledge, uh, as we often do, the, the passing of a large character uh, in music history. And of course, I'm referring to Phil Spector. <laughs> yes, yes. Passed away over the weekend. Um, he, uh, perhaps of COVID nineteen. I saw hmm. I saw some reports. Uh, actually, TMZ said it was COVID nineteen, and uh, amazingly, TMZ is actually tends to be right D- most yeah, of the time. Surprisingly, they've turned out to be one of the <laughs> forefronts in accurate reporting. <laughs> right. So, uh, so p- potentially COVID nineteen. Uh, other sources just said natural causes, but um, died uh, in prison. Uh, indicative of the complicated legacy. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where it, it's it's our tendency then to just go in and talk about you know his accomplishments and his and his legacy and history as a producer, but you, you kind of got to lead with the fact that he's a convicted murderer. Yeah. Yeah, that makes it, uh, you know, it's we've had these conversations before, whether, you know, you're talking about Michael Jackson or, or whoever. But uh, can you separate the artist from 
the art, you know, how do you appreciate the art without excusing some of the awful things that, that come to light with some of these people? Yeah. And, and it's, it, does it feel different when you're talking about someone who is, you know, creating the music or giving voice to the music versus someone who was maybe a genius in terms of mic placement or some of the other things that went into creating the wall of sound? Um, you know, I, I don't, I, I still don't know how to completely separate um, the artist or the creator or the producer from the music. I, and I don't know that, that we can. Right. Um, I'm not sure that, that you can ever just completely cancel uh, the art that someone's made because it, it has sort of made its dent and made its mark right. uh, on society and on music. And, and I think it's okay to acknowledge that, that Phil Spector was a brilliant music producer and created some music that, that has you know stood the test of time yeah. and still simultaneously say... Um, this was a, a very dark person who, you know, was in prison for good reason. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think of, you know, Lana Clarkson, who was the, the victim, the, the woman that, that died at his hand. And, you know, yesterday I was seeing a lot of tributes um, on Facebook and social media about Phil Spector. And um, I have some Facebook friends who knew Lana Clarkson. And so I saw some people posting, you know, tributes to, to her as well, which I think is appropriate to say, mm-hmm. hey, you know, an innocent woman lost her life because of, of Phil Spector. Um, but I also saw um, Ronnie Spector um, of the Ronettes, who was Phil's wife for a time, posted something on Facebook that I thought was, um, you know, insightful. She said um, he was a brilliant producer, but a lousy husband. <laughs> and I mean, that's understating it. He was violent. He was abusive. He he made her life, you know, hell. She literally escaped like barefoot with nothing. I mean, it was not unlike the uh, the Ike and Tina Turner right. situation. You know, there just hasn't been a, a Ronnie Spector movie that is emblazoned that idea in our brains. But it was a very similar um, type of thing. So but but I thought for Ronnie Spector, who kind of endured um, his violence and his, you know, mental illness, really, um, to be able to still say, okay, this guy was, was a lousy husband, but he was a brilliant producer. You know, he was, uh, he, he, he left music, um, that is part of the fabric of American culture. And not only as a producer, um, which he's perhaps the first kind of celebrity, producer but also as a songwriter i mean he had his hand in be my baby uh river deep mountain high chapel of love spanish harlem to do ron ron then he kissed me i mean these songs exist i mean they are part of of the world of music they are um you know part of our culture and so the fact that the man who uh, brought us this music then later did this unspeakably awful thing well the, his most famous unspeakably awful thing apparently he did a <laughs> right. lot of yeah. awful things uh, but even even having done those awful things um we still have this music so yeah. it, it it brings us back to that complicated you know separating the artist from their art thing that we've talked about before yeah and and it's sort of you know it's it's hard to find a way to you know how do you segue from talking about phil Spector to talking about martin luther king jr right but but i think in a way it it does come down to legacy and how do you view legacy? Um, and, and I think Martin Luther King now is someone that to, to take a moment to, to look at his legacy and, and he's had a legacy on music as well. And I think it's something that as time goes by, it, it doesn't become harder 
to look at Martin Luther King Jr. with with eyes of admiration, it actually becomes easier. I, I feel like the more in focus some of the problems in our country become, the more necessary his words and his approach become. Hmm. Um, and, and I I, mean, I find myself after a year like 2020, just just wanting to to dive deeper into uh, sort of his you know his peaceful uh, but courageous response to to the darkness and hatred all around him. Yeah, and, and and what a legacy he left. I mean, everybody knows Martin Luther King for uh, you know the the civil rights um, era, and if you look at most sort of cursory stories about his life, it's like and and then the Civil Rights Act passed, and then he was assassinated. Well, there was a lot of years actually between that, and he mm-hmm. was really engaged in nonviolence work. He was a huge advocate for the poor. Um, you know, he was a person who was a crusader for compassion and love and justice. And boy, we could use uh, all three of those things right now. Yes, we could. Um, and, you know, I, I mentioned his influence on music and it's not I don't think we can find any songs that he wrote um, that I know of. Um, but I certainly know when you look at some of the artists that, that we revere, that they were certainly emboldened uh, by his dream mm-hmm. and by the things that he said, and you can find it in the music. And and I, <laughs> I don't think you'd have to go too far to have these uh, these musicians actually acknowledge that. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I, it got me to thinking: Are there some songs uh, out there? You know, we, we sort of know the ones that are the you know, someday we'll all be free, Donny Hathaway, or We Shall Overcome, or even Happy Birthday, the Stevie Wonder song being about Martin Luther King Day. We you know, we we know so many of those songs. But are there songs about racism in the world and in America that are a little more under the radar hmm. that, uh, that we're familiar with that, that might be worth our listeners uh, checking out today? The racial justice deep cuts. There you go. <laughs> um, and so while I give you just a moment to think about this, I'd love to spring these things on you. <laughs> I love um, when you do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell mine. I was thinking about it this morning. And it's, uh, it's a song by Stevie Wonder uh, simply called Black Man. And it's on the Songs in the Key of Life album. It, uh, it goes through sort of the contributions that people of different races have made um, to America and the world, you know, through innovations and, and inventions uh, throughout time. Uh, even you know, the first line says, the first man to die for the flag we now hold high was a black man. And that's Crispus Attucks. Um, and you know, the, the guide of a ship on the first Columbus trip was a brown man. Uh, it's Pedro Alonso Nino. So um, hmm. Stevie Wonder did his homework. Yeah. And, uh, and that was before the internet. It was. I thought about that. Honestly, I thought about that this morning that Stevie Wonder had to find a book, a, a book in Braille, by the way. Right. But he had to, he had to find, you know, books to research, to, to find, you know, to, to inform these songs that he wanted to create, which that's a level of commitment. Um, so uh, hopefully uh, artists these days are employing some, you know, their hearts and their minds, um, to create songs that are, that are going to bring enlightenment to the world. And I hope I've given you enough time to think of yours. Um, well, so I'm going to, I'm going to mention one. We, we, uh, we have no control over what our guests choose to say or not say on this show, but you and I typically try to keep it pretty PG right. uh, in this section of the show. So I'm just going to warn any listener that the title of this song is not uh, not necessarily uh, PG. But the one that comes to mind um, is Mississippi Goddamn mm. uh, by Nina Simone. And 
she wrote that song in the 60s after Medgar Evers was murdered. And the the thing about that song is it's not a song of hope. Hmm. Um, it's a song of despair. And I think we kind of like our, you know, we, we, we kind of like our anthems to be, you know, anthems of, of hope for obvious reasons. We want to believe that we can be better. We want to believe that, you know, we can aspire to greatness, but sometimes there are dark moments, yeah. uh, in, in the life of, of our nation and, and people are crying out from a place of despair. And I think as a song, you know, the lyrics, Alabama's gotten me so upset. Tennessee made me lose my rest and everybody knows about Mississippi. God damn. It's just like that's an incredible lyric. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like there's there's so much said in those simple lyrics, and if I remember right, I think she debuted that song at Carnegie Hall for like a mostly Mm. white audience in the '60s, and it was sort of like, oh, okay, yeah, like like, well, you know, this is real. Yeah, and and then or now, if if you're more offended by the use of that word than you are by what she's singing about, right? If you're more, if you're more <laughs> offended by hearing that word than you are about what happened, yeah, and what is happening and what has happened, uh, then you probably need to check your priorities anyway. <laughs> exactly, you know? exactly. Um, and I, I, you know, the Bible talks about like uh, the groaning of the spirit, yeah. And to me, that is a song that is the sound of a spirit groaning. Uh, yeah. in, in the face of just, uh, injustice and, and the, the way that during that civil rights era that people were just murdered <laughs> for yeah. trying to stand up and, yeah. and, uh, and, and trying to call for what was right. Um, you know, it, 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 to me, that song is just, is powerful. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's the one that kind of pops into my mind is kind of the, the quintessential, civil rights anthem. Well, I think, yeah, and and all of us sort of respond to world events in different ways. And, you know, you and I tend to run to music, you know? So it's, uh, I think if you're a listener of this podcast, you may be the same way. So hopefully those are a couple songs that you can uh, check out and just sort of, you know, just deepen things, your understanding and and, and, um, even just understanding where these artists are coming from. Yeah. So um, we honor Dr. King today. Um, Thankful for that legacy and um, and what it's meant to all of us. Absolutely. And I, I think it's really appropriate today that we have Ani DeFranco as our guest, who has been uh, a real social activist in addition to uh, being a brilliant musician, singer, songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, poet, everything yeah. else that she is. Um, you know, she has really kind of carried that banner for social justice, kind of, I would say, connecting her to that legacy of great 1950s and 60s uh, protest singers. Um, and uh, so to me, it feels appropriate that on this day when we reflect on peace and justice, that we have the opportunity to talk about Ani, who has also been um, a huge feminist advocate and, um, you know, to to go from talking about uh, Phil Spector, who has committed <laughs> some real atrocities yeah. um, to seeing that, you know, we can see that darkness in humanity. We can see that violence. We can see that misogyny, you know, talking about the sort of things that, you know, Stevie Wonder and Nina Simone were reacting to. We, we can see that 
the murderousness and we can see the the darkest qualities of the human heart but we also see these people like Martin Luther King like Ani DeFranco like Nina Simone like Stevie Wonder people who are saying you know what we can do better we can we can focus on who we are as a people who we are as a nation because we know that we want to be a place of equality a place of justice a place of peace and so we're going to call people to that. So I can't think of a better guest uh, to help us honor King's legacy this week as we, as we, you know, it needs to be more than a day that mm. we think about what Martin Luther King, you know, has, has inspired in our nation. Um, so it, it was great to speak to Ani, somebody that I've admired for uh, a long time. And I'm excited to share this interview with our listeners. Well, I don't think I can add much to that. That was pretty well said. So how about I let you have the last word? So you, you want one more, one more word? Yeah, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna pick a word. Okay. Um, sandwich. Part two. Singer, songwriter, musician, producer, poet, author, spoken word artist, activist, and entrepreneur Ani DeFranco has released more than 20 independent studio albums on her own label, Righteous Babe Records. Though often classified as alternative folk, DeFranco's musical influences span a range of genres. After relentless touring, she reached a wide commercial audience in the late 1990s and early 2000s with albums such as Little Plastic Castle, Up, 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 Reveling, Reckoning, Evolve, Educated Guess, and the gold-certified live album Living in Clip. The Grammy winner and nine-time nominee achieved her sole top 40 hit as a songwriter when Alana Davis covered the DeFranco classic 32 Flavors in 1997. The prolific and critically acclaimed performer developed her own uniquely percussive guitar style and has collaborated with a range of artists, including Bonnie Vare's Justin Vernon, Bruce Coburn, Pete Seeger, Utah Phillips, Maceo Parker, and Prince. In addition to releasing her own music, DeFranco's label has issued recordings by Sarah Lee, Andrew Bird, Nona Hendricks, and others. Ani was one of the first musicians to receive the Woman of Courage Award from the National Organization for Women and was honored with both the Woody Guthrie Award and the Southern Center for Human Rights Human Rights Award. Her memoir, No Walls and the Recurring Dream, was released in 2019 by Viking Books. The New Orleans-based DeFranco's latest album, Revolutionary Love, is a timely social statement scheduled for release on January 29, 2021. Ani, welcome to Songcraft. Hey, thanks for having me. That's quite a list of of guests you've had. Beautiful. Oh yeah. That that <laughs> I know, right. You didn't just tell your audience, but you just told me, and it's it's a wonderful <laughs> list. I'm jealous of your job. We're excited that we get to add Ani DeFranco to that list today. This is very cool for us. Me too. You have a new album called Revolutionary Love. Uh, it's a pretty soulful record with lots of vintage keys and organs, some very rootsy steel guitar, and even some 70s-inspired strings, flutes, and percussion. It's a really cool-sounding project. And I understand you recorded that in North Carolina. Um, this is your 22nd solo studio album. In what ways did you approach the process differently this time around? Um, <clears throat> how did I approach it differently? Well, it was a pandemic, so <laughs> everybody was approaching everything differently. And, um, yeah, normally I have a little home recording set up, as people do in the 21st century. So normally I would just 
have my bass player and drummer come here to my house and we would record a record and then maybe after the bed tracking I would say to myself hmm what does this album need and I might invite some people to overdub but none of that was happening during the pandemic you know I didn't it didn't seem like a cool thing to ask people to fly in and be in an enclosed space together and it all so I I was talking to my friend Brad Cook who lives in Durham North Carolina and um he had lent me this guitar that I wrote most of these songs on. And I'm talking to him and I'm like, how am I going to, I want to make a record and I want it out by, you know, the election. And I, and what the hell am I going to do? And he just basically said, come to Durham, give me a week. If you can get your ass to Durham, I'll do the rest. And he hmm. booked me in this little studio in an abandoned strip mall, basically, with a bunch of dudes I'd never met. <laughs> These, uh, you know, friends and associates of him that are skulking around in the woods there in in North Carolina, uh, including his brother, Phil Cook. And um, as it turns out, there's just these terribly enlightened, beautiful, gracious musicians just <laughs> skulking around up there. And he put us all in masks in this little studio for about four or five days. And we just tracked this record like we were never going to see each other again, which, you know, is possibly the truth. You know, we just kind of <laughs> made it happen. Um so that was a little bit unique, just going to a new location, working with a, a host of new people, you know, uh, except for Brad. I'd never met anybody when we uh, before we sat down to record. Yeah. Wow. Your musical career has been intertwined with your social activism from the start. Uh, but this album seems to put a particular emphasis on the political divide as you wrestle with the ideas of finding points of connection. Um, the song Do or Die, for example, says, and I know you've got to fight your adrenaline just to be a gentleman. And I know I've got to fight my amygdala just to keep hearing you. But we can do this if we try, if we do this like it's do or die. And there's models wielding Chasing maniacs around And everything's on fire And there's twisters touching down And I know you got to fight your adrenaline Just to be a gentleman And I know I got to fight my amygdala Just to keep hearing ya But we can do this if we try if we do this, I guess do it down. We can do this if we try. If we do this, I guess do it down. You know, in a similar spirit, the title track has lines like, I will ask you questions I will try to understand, as well as, and even if you hurt me, I will not shut down. Um, talk a bit about this sort of common ground theme that runs through the album? Um, well, first of all, I think we need to make a spoken word album where you just speak all of my <laughs> lyrics. Because <laughs> that was pretty fun. Um, but that we'll do that later. Um, yeah, well, it's becoming more and more complicated, isn't it, in this modern and now pandemic 
driven world. Um, and I, I don't know, I guess, you know, every one of my records is just, uh, it's like, you know, a landscape painting of the, the, the terrain I've been moving through, you know, in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I guess for me lately, the last few years, I've been, and maybe my whole life uh, up till then as well, just, yeah, struggling for connection, struggling, uh, pining, aching um, for connection and understanding. And, and I think, um, you know, I certainly see as we all do, you know, our society driven further and further into disunity and division and disconnection, you know, and, and we, and further into this cancel culture where if somebody pisses you off, you kick them off the planet and, uh, you know, and uh, this sort of dead end streets everywhere Mm -hmm. you turn. And, and I, I feel like, um, as I saw my society around me coming closer and closer to crisis in this area. I also was experiencing that in my personal sphere, my life, my my real life, my marriage, like for years, just growing further apart, but aching for the opposite, you know, and not knowing how to be the one to take the first step, you know, how to even embark on the the journey towards healing towards understanding um yeah so i think a lot of these songs you know for me i'm always so intrigued when the most hmm, personal you know heart felt heartache that i can express is also the most macro political statement that i you know when they're one and the same Mm. you know i i get very i don't know creatively turned on and intrigued by that and so i think a lot of these songs i may be obviously talking about my society and my relationship to it and i or i may be obviously talking about my personal relationship or or i might not even be sure myself you know so that's where i think just all of these songs live yeah yeah, sometimes I think people they'll look at a moment in society and say, "Well, I don't want to address that artistically until I feel like I have some answers." But in some ways, it's like, "Well, no, I just want to have the right questions." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Answers are a trap. <laughs> I think you're, <laughs> I think you're on to something. Um, the right questions is really more essential because the wrong questions, there just are no right answers Hmm. well you know people in in our position of of asking these you know musical questions and analyzing music we're always sort of parsing through the music and and finding what what does this sound like or feel like or where did this come from and you know there's a song on your record chloroform and i i hear these these sweeping dramatic string arrangements and and the drum sound of it and i'm like oh i I hear some some beatles touches in there I don't 
necessarily hear a ton of Lennon and McCartney influence in your body of work as a whole. And, and I'm curious, you know, what were the things early on when you first started sort of, you know, thinking about music and listening to music? What were the things early on that, that influenced you? Well, I did listen to a lot of Beatles in the beginning. Like that was my jam. I, I had the Beatles complete, complete songbook. Um, when I was single digits, and those were all the songs I learned first. So, you know, I guess I've been on a long musical journey since then, but it's deep in there, so maybe it's um, rearing its black, shiny head, <laughs> the Beatles' influence. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I I don't... I've always been... I've always been hard pressed to also to talk about my influences, which makes me feel like a jerk because I would love to pay homage and credit where it's due at every turn because uh, there are so many uh, people who have affected me so deeply. But I find for all of the, you know, sort of self-consciousness and navel gazing involved in being a singer songwriter, I don't. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Why, why am I singing this way? Why am I, to actually analyze myself, I, I feel uh, reticent to do it. Um, uh, and so it's hard for me to get there. But I, I know there's, you know, I know that there's Beatles deep in me. And, um, uh, and I love the kind of childlike you know, though Lennon and McCartney are awesome team, of course, like the 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 whole Ringo Starr childlike, you know, approach to rhythm and uh, like I super have that lust in me. I think that he put hmm. long ago. Um, you know, I I in my teen years I moved to a lot of soul music. Um, a lot of 70s, you know, I sort of backtracked a couple decades and I sank deep into the 70s. So certainly on this record, I'm like deeply, deliciously pleased to hear, you know, hints of Curtis Mayfield, who's one of my heroes all time, um, not just as a singer and being and spirit, and but as an indie label starter and... Um, you know, just politically uh, aware person, and I just love him. So, you know, I don't know. Maybe there's all of these kind of secret Ani ingredients that are bubbling <laughs> to the surface. Well, I understand that your home life was fairly turbulent, and you basically struck out on your own at the age of 15. What role did creating music and writing lyrics play for you therapeutically as you were, you know, navigating kind of the trauma, for lack of a better word, of like becoming an adult when you were still a kid? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was everything. Music. I mean, it was almost everything. In the early years, I also danced a lot and moving my body and taking dance classes and then um, the dance studio that I hung out at, they just let me hang out endlessly and take all the classes. I was kind of like the, you know, the kid at the boxing, you know, uh, gym that doesn't go home. And um, so that was very healing. But music, wow, you know, I don't, 
you know, I mean, whatever. It's a cliche, and so many people live it, but I'm just one more. Like, I just don't know how I would have gotten through without my guitar and that uh, that portal, you know, to yeah. expressing and, and healing, you know, just just singing it, just saying it, singing it if you want to, you know, uh, out of your body, even if nobody's there and nobody's listening, is medicine. So that's what I started doing. And it, yeah, and then, you know, I was, um, I feel very fortunate that as a kid, somebody handed me an instrument, which is, doesn't happen to all kids. I mean, I asked for it, <laughs> you know, I said, <laughs> Mommy, Daddy, I want a guitar. I don't know why I said that, but I was serious. And they they humored me, and I am so blessed because, you know, especially kids who struggle or they are surrounded by struggle or unhappy adults, um, to have an outlet is just huge. And to be given an instrument, especially for a girl, um, you know, is not a blessing that every kid has. So the fact that I was given my guitar at early enough, you know, I was nine years old and I was able to grow up with it and into it and make the guitar an extension of my body. Um, Yeah, that's the most liberating circumstance of all, where I was not only allowed, given a space and a, a way to do music, but a tool that I could really become intuitive and free with. And that was really freeing and emotionally, you know, helped me heal my way through it. Yeah, yeah. Well, in 1990, you released your self-titled debut album on your own Righteous Babe Records. And and I I remember back in those days, Scott and I actually knew each other then in in high school. And, you know, your name would come up as this sort of champion of of DIY, you know, music, do-it-yourself music, along with, you know, people like Fugazi, you know. Um, and, and that album featured now classic songs from your catalog like Fire Door, Out of Habit, and Both Hands. And the old woman behind the pink curtains and the closed door on the first floor, she's listening through the air shaft to see how long a swan song can last. And both hands, now use both hands. Oh, now don't close your eyes. I am writing. Graffiti on your body I am drawing the story of How hard we tried And that album, of course, is all acoustic And it's a reflection of how you were performing at the time In what ways did being a one-person act with one guitar Influence your approach to songwriting in those early days? Since You know, you, you really knew the, the precise potential and, and the limits of how a song could be delivered to an audience Because you were you were recording them that exact way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Music from the beginning was a pretty solitary endeavor for me, as a circumstance would have it. I have long envied the members of bands in this world, you know, because it's just the grass is always greener, I guess. But for me, music was just something that lived in my guitar and I would go to my guitar and I would pull it out and it would transport me. And so that's how I learned to ride. You know, I started performing solo and you you basically, you know, uh, I mean, I'm a kid with an acoustic guitar in the corner of a bar, you know, 
trying to desperately, again, as we started this conversation, trying to connect with somebody and, and, and feel not alone and feel seen and feel connected. And of course, everybody else in the bar just like wants to have a beer and, and talk to the cute <laughs> girl next to them and couldn't give two shits about me. So I had to develop all these survival skills. And I think my guitar sound you know, was the first thing to kind of lean in that direction of like, hey, over here, you know, and then, you know, you got to capture, you got to somehow capture their interest and keep it. And, you know, the, the being your own sort of bass player and drummer, you know, to keep people grooving and engaged and then, you know, try to lay stuff through their eyeballs and through your lyrics and shit into their brain. You know, that was all... That was my quest, you know, how to be hmm. enough at all times. It's interesting that you, you say that because, you know, I listen to, to songs like Anticipate from 1991's Not So Soft or God's Country from 1993's Puddle Dive. And, you know, you really hear that unique rhythmic acoustic guitar style. I should recognize that fierce look in his eyes. I've seen it in my mirror so many times He's gonna put his two cents in Cause he's got a gun But I'm gonna put in three Cause history owes me one Very percussive and you use these alternate tunings And it's, you know, when you hear it You're like, oh, that's Ani DeFranco Like, it's very distinctive And it's it's fascinating to hear how that sort of directly emerged from kind of that live setting the need yeah. to capture attention and to and yeah. to, to be able to to play a full sound and and stand out yep yeah. i definitely you know when when young people come to me and they're like how do i get you know to where you are you know <laughs> like in a bus <laughs> with curtains in the window and um you know i, I just say uh, gigs 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 Go, go play. Go play for people. Yeah. Go play for people yeah. outside of your room. Like, go, don't fool yourself. You can't, you know, because it's, those are your teachers. The world is your teacher, you know? And yeah. so, and it's going to change you and it's going to push you and it's going to scare the shit out of you. And it's going to make you, it's going to challenge you. And so I think that's, you know, I'm glad, I guess, that I I just started pushing my way into bars and into the world with my music when I was way illegal. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, 15, 16, playing in bars <laughs> and running the open right. mic and learning how to play songs for people. And I think, you know, the sort of unique sound, the Ani D thing that you can recognize when you hear it, like you say, it, that came from, that came to me from the world, you know? Mm. So... I don't think I would be the same animal if I was sort of navel gazing at home yeah, all that time. Yeah. You know, the first Ani DeFranco CD that I bought was 1994's Out of Range, which came out when I was in college and was myself just trying to figure out how to write songs of my own. Um, and there are a lot of classics on that record, such as Buildings and Bridges and Overlap, but it was the title track that really caught my ear. And especially that opening verse, just the thought of our bed makes me crumble like the plaster where you punch the wall beside my head. And I try to draw the line, but it ends up running down the middle of me most of the time. You know, there's this, 
it's this percussive and clever wordplay and alliteration happening at the same time as there's kind of frightening scene is being described. And I remember hearing that and just marveling at the craft of how the lyrics were structured in a way that allowed them to be delivered almost like another instrument in the song. Just the thought of our bed makes me crumble like the plaster where you punch the wall beside my head. And I try to draw the line, but it ends up running down the middle of me most of the time. And boys get locked up in some prison, girls get locked up in some house. And it don't matter if it's a warden or a lover or a spouse. You just can't talk to them, you just can't reason, you just can't leave, and you just can't please. I mean, I um, and we've talked about your, you know, guitar style, but talk a little bit about your approach to lyricism, to how you constructed words um, in those early albums. Yeah. Wow. Well, first of all, bless your heart for buying my <laughs> record when you were <laughs> 20 nothing and I was 20 something else and <laughs> for actually listening uh, to what I was trying to do with my words and my art. And, I, you know, when you were just describing that and, and, and remembering out of range moments, I was over here secretly crying, not so secret anymore, I guess. Just like, <laughs> it's wild how isolated this, you know, because of the pandemic, I haven't played music for anyone in a, in a while. And I sort of wonder if that identity or job or even really happened or is, does it still exist? And and the idea that somebody I don't know in college dorm somewhere just actually really deeply checked in with and and met me where I was going creatively is like, wow, what a gift. Um, <laughs> but yeah, what was I doing with my words? I was I was trying to make music. Like you say, I I I think I got turned on by the music of language. Uh, you know, English, unfortunately, the only language I know, although I have been deeply turned on by the music of many languages I don't know. And it's um, actually quite liberating to listen to Brazilian music and, and, and be freed of meaning and just just tap into the music of Portuguese or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Um, but yeah, the music of English that we sometimes forget to notice or um, revel in because we get so locked up in the meanings of what's being said to us. But for me, I I remember the I remember the moment I learned the word prosody. Is that how you say it? Do you know this word? Yeah, yeah. About the rise and fall of the melody with the lyric. Yeah. yeah so exactly, like the music of speech. How do you say what you say? You know, what is the mm. da, 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 da. You know, <laughs> what's the melody that goes with what you're trying to communicate? And I, and I remember when I learned there was a word for that. And of course, words cement ideas and, and illuminate them in, in your consciousness. And a long time ago, I learned that word and it was so affirming to me. It's like, yes, that's what I well, and that's one element of, of what I am subconsciously pursuing when I'm writing songs, like how to 
make the meaning of what I'm saying impact through the melody of how I sing it, through the how to make the rhythm convey things, and 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 the way the rhythm of the words. Uh, interacts with the rhythm of the guitar. What does that say? Who is somebody pushing somebody else, or is somebody pulling back? Or, you know, not that all of this is conscious, but I think it's all uh, subconscious pursuits that that you recognized. It it, all, it sometimes makes me think about people that say, you know, how long it takes when they're getting ready to make it look like they just rolled out of bed. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, they're. They work on their hair to make it look like, oh, just that that windblown look. And and I think lyrics, when it comes to that conversationalism and that prosody, can almost be the same way. Yeah. Where it's like, man, I really want to labor on this so it sounds like it just fell out. Yeah. Yeah. I do feel victorious in a secret way when people call my writing conversational. Because I do, I it's exactly right. I think you have no idea the labor that goes in to making you think I just that just was something I just mumbled yeah <laughs> well you, you know another song on the out of range album and it that deviates a bit from the early emphasis on acoustic guitar is you had time and it, that one opens with a two-minute piano intro and and then that kind of weaves itself back in during the final minute of the song in what ways does working on a different instrument open up different channels for you in terms of your songwriting instincts? Oh, I wish I knew more about all the ways that different instruments can... I mean, the mo- I think the most that I usually do is I pick up different stringed instruments, different guitars. You know, I have a, a baritone guitar and a tenor guitar, and sometimes somebody hands me a ukulele or, you know, and things that are in my ballpark uh, that I can get around. But yeah, I mean, a piano is like dizzying to me. And then, or, you know, sitting behind a drum kit can bring out uh, something totally different. And I feel like I used to be deep enough in music where I was uh, pre-kids, pre, you know, grown-up BS. And I just played music all the time. And I just, I was completely free to, and I was surrounded by, I had a band and I was surrounded by musicians, friends, and they played me music and we played music together. And sometimes uh, we handed each other our instruments. And um, I felt like I was deeply immersed uh, earlier on in my life, deep enough that I could sit at a piano and kind of improvise, though I never learned how to play piano or anything but guitar. And for sure, it 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 scrambles and reshifts the brain and the sensibilities straight away. It's very very fun. <laughs> yeah. Well, in terms of larger audiences becoming aware of your work, uh, 1995's Not a Pretty Girl album was a bit of a turning point. You received your first Grammy nomination for Best Female Rock Vocal Performance for the song Shy. Um, And the album also featured 32 Flavors, which went on to be covered by Alana Davis and became your only top 40 pop hit as a songwriter. Yeah, 
someone who is extremely independent and, and grassroots oriented, uh, how did that experience feel for you? How was that moment of, of kind of wider recognition of this sort of very self-contained thing that you had built? Um, how was that moment? It was a long, slow motion moment. Um, well, as, as you say, like, you know, it was maybe 10 years, right, from when I'm a teenager beginning to hone my craft in bars in Buffalo to when Not a Pretty Girl kind of hits the radar of alternative culture, if not whatever, just pop culture. Um, right. And, 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 of course, there was the, the, the headline is, you know, overnight success you know here's this out of nowhere you know <laughs> who's this and um so at that juncture another slow motion moment uh played out began to play out which was yeah fame my little dalliance with it you know um you know i never uh, got to those upper echelons uh, probably thankfully you know and and in fact I think at the point, you know, not a pretty girl and then little plastic castle, uh, you know, playing arenas, say, when I got to that point in the late 90s, early, you know, turn of that century, I, I, it was hard. It was dizzying. It was inappropriate for me to be with this music that you recognize as being very simple, very specific to myself and my little guitar and now I'm in this huge space where I you know I don't put on a that kind of show you know there's no lights and and dancing and and or it, so to speak you know that kind of spectacle it's it's about diving deeper and deeper into sort of intimacy with me you know so imagine me in that circumstance it was hard and again, a girl who sort of felt alienated as a kid seeking connection through music is now the only point of connection I'm offered is frantic adulation, you know, is screaming <laughs> people who want a piece, who want a hair sample and a, and a hug and a more, two hugs and a, and, a, and a piece of your clothing and like, what connection is that, you know? So hmm. it was uh, challenging, and uh, it it put, you know, I feel like it was a good, I don't know, 20 years of moving through and then further and further away and back out of that frenzied moment. And looking back, I don't think that that frenzied peak was my best, uh, it was good for me as an artist or a human. I think I did a lot of flailing, which is, looking back, kind of a bummer if you're me, hmm. you know, to feel that the moment when 10,000 people showed up, I was lost, you know. Uh, but maybe that is what it what it is, as as hmm. as I said, like what it should be, because... You know, when there's 1,000 people or less, uh, you know, which is more typical now, I am very much at home and i in my skin once again and, and able to do what I, I'm, I come to do, you know, so. 
Yeah. You know, in some ways I hear, I think I hear some of that wrestling uh, in the title track of of your album Dilate from 1996. I mean, that was your first album to appear on the Billboard charts. I mean, there's a lot of staples of your catalog on that record, including Untouchable Face, Napoleon, Shameless, and Joyful Girl. But when I listen to the track Dilate, this one is particularly personal and vulnerable. When I need to wipe my face, I use the back of my hand. And I like to take up space just because I can. And I use my dress to wipe up my drink. You know, I care less and less what people think. And you are so lame, you know. You always disappoint me. It's kind of like a running joke. It's really not funny, and I just want you to live up to the image of you I create. I see you when I'm so unsatisfied. I see you when I die alone. Can you tell us a bit about writing that song? Yeah, I was in a, I was in a state. I was having a time. <laughs> I was, <laughs> I was, I was in a forbidden love affair with my, you know, sound guy you know, who had a girlfriend, you know. So, uh, you know, a lot of the songs on that record, you know, it's like just struggling with uh, myself, my own integrity, my desires, my my loneliness, my seeking, my, my, you know, and uh, yeah, I was, I think I had entered this, I don't know, uh, this this completely visceral space you know i i i i don't i'm not sure how people can listen to my, most of my music really <laughs> but plus their hearts <laughs> that any do you know because it, it's really yeah there's a no holding back kind of full frontal exorcism going on half the time and i guess that's the level like you say, the level at which I was struggling and needing the 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 level of of energy in my body that needed to be released, and I had only music uh, still at that time to do so. Hmm. Yeah. Well. To date, your highest charting album is Little Plastic Castle, and I remember getting that album when it came out and being completely pleasantly blown away when those horns kicked in on the mm. title track. And they say goldfish have no memory. I guess their lives are much like mine. And the little plastic castle is a surprise every time. And it's hard to say if they're happy. But they don't seem much to mind. Yeah! There are so many great tracks on that album, like Gravel, Swan Dive, Fuel, plenty of others. Um, but as is, has become kind of an Ani DeFranco standard. And I got no illusions about you. Guess what? I never did. When I said, when I said I'll take it, I meant, I meant. 
that song works as a completely honest and unsentimental love song or kind of as a song of of resignation and and i think that song can actually be interpreted as either beautiful or kind of sad or maybe both um what what can you tell us about that song yeah that's interesting you're yeah i mean i love that song myself of all my songs that's one of my favorites because it's like you know it's a it's a bigger me that's singing there than you know the maybe the me of dilate or other songs where i'm you know i'm smaller and i'm gr- grasping upwards out you know as is for me um i feel like i i'm also a huge bill withers fan and i just oh, yeah. i so love the place that he I'm going to stay present tense because I just have to, that he sings from, you know, um, you know, this, this, this benevolent, loving, compassionate place that he writes and sings from. And I feel like that's a little, that's the little bit of Bill Withers in me coming out in that song, for instance, as is like, it's really a song I wrote to a friend, um, one of my friends and associates uh, that I worked with for a long time. And, you know, uh, you know, touring and traveling is like being married with people. It's very intense, you know, being in a band with somebody. It's a type of marriage, as, as anybody knows who's there. And so, yeah, it's a relationship song for sure um, in that sense. But it's, yeah, it's just about like I accept you. You know, I, I accept you. I love you. You don't have to put on a show for me. I don't think you're perfect. I don't think I'm perfect. I'm still your friend, and I will always be your mm-hmm. friend. You know, it just sort of, I guess, I don't, I don't, for myself, it's not a place of resignation. It's a place of acceptance, and it's it's a place of, of compassion. Um, in the 1990s, you pretty much put out an album every year, uh, except in 1999, when you somehow managed to release three albums in a 12-month period, um, Up, 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 <laughs> then a duet <laughs> album with Utah Phillips called Fellow Workers, and finally To the Teeth. Um, and the, the title track on that latter album is a, a pointed critique of, of gun violence and the ties between the gun lobby and, and politicians and, and the media. Um, you know, there's no shortage of artists who write about political or social issues, but it's really woven into the fabric of your art in a way that seems so crucially intertwined. Um, give us your thoughts on how, for you, activism and art are tied together. Yeah. Yeah. They, they come, activism and art, for me, come from the same place the the need to be whole and as far as i know one cannot be whole when you're surrounded by broken people you cannot be you cannot save yourself alone you know um hmm. so yeah everything that makes me march in the streets uh, or write a political song or or write a letter to some, you know, uh, authoritative enter- entity or whatever I'm doing. 
it's the same thing that makes me sing, you know? It's like, I feel like that is so anyway, you know? It's that hmm. that motivation to to heal myself and others and to connect us and to make us stronger, stronger in our sense of ourselves and connected to our purpose and our potential. Like I, I just, I, it kills me on a moment to moment basis, how we are unable to realize our potential, you know, because of so many factors in society thwarting so many people and the collective loss of potential, you know, patriarchy hurts men, you know, racism hurts white people. It's like we are all being brought down by these destructive forces. Um, hmm. So I think it's all wanting to transcend that, wanting to rejoin with my fellow you know, with the consciousness all around me. That's it's so, yeah, you know, whenever I'm again, like those questions that uh, like the question of what is the relationship between politics and music for you or so it's like relation. <laughs> so those are different or wait, it's so it's two things. And, you know, I yeah, for me, it's like it's a blurry it's a blurry thing. And, and on a motivational level, it's the same. Huh. Yeah. Well, I I can't go through this interview without asking about the fact that Prince played on the track Providence on the To the Teeth album. And of course, you played on his song, I Love You, But I Don't Trust You Anymore. You are, you know, kind of known as this solo, solitary creative force. And I, I don't see a whole lot of, of co-writing in, in your catalog. But when it comes to collaborating creatively with a guy like Prince, I I. I would think that anyone would jump at that opportunity, but also maybe be a little uh, freaked out by that opportunity. How, how did that come about, and and how was that for you? Oh, dude! I mean, I jumped sky high when he looked my way, <laughs> and I, and whatever the what, what did you say? The the I was just paralyzed, paralyzed with <laughs> whatever paralyzes one in his presence at every moment, like just awestruck, awestruck by him, which is. Yeah, what a gift. I mean, I would love to freaking collaborate. I'd love to try to co-write songs. You're right. I've never done that. And I think it has a lot to do with that I'm just seen as a indie girl, USA. She does her own thing. And certainly that's how it's shaken down. And I because I never wanted to wait around for somebody's permission or the, you know, or help even, you know, I just had, I just needed to do it. Um, but that's, I've been there, done that. And man, collaborating in new and unprecedented ways, uh, would tickle me to no end. I mean, yeah, Prince. Wow. Uh, you know, some of the people I've uh, been able to briefly collaborate with, I have, you know, they are they are teaching moments. They are, um, you know, Prince, when he, uh, looking back, that song Providence, I mean, one of these days, I'm going to do the naughty thing for an artist and I'm going to go try to fix 
my my mistakes. I'm going to go and I'm going to find the 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 master recordings of Providence and I'm going to remix. I'm going to re-sing that motherfucker. I might even I'm going to fix the whole track around Prince and I'm going to crank him, which is what I should have done at the time. Um, but uh, bless him for you know bringing his incredible spirit to that recording. I wish I had done it justice at the time. Um, you know, doing when when we met, I met him. I met. I was playing in Minneapolis. He comes to my show. He's standing side stage. I'm like, where I'm standing next to him, watching Maceo Parker play another just titan of funky badass music. One of my heroes. It's. I'm thinking, do I die now? Is this dying happy? What <laughs> is there lightning? Um, and and Prince says, you know, he invites me to Paisley Park the next day to play on he's he's i'm working on a new record you want to come play on it and what do i say to him cheeky little thing that i am i was like okay if you play on my record so that's how that (laughs) went down he sort of laughed at me like all right so i show up so that's how he ended up on providence and i i showed up the next day and i'm sitting in the waiting room pooping in my pants you know they're like hold on (laughs) he will see you in a moment and then finally, you know, dude comes out and he's like, okay, he's ready. And Prince has just freshly tracked that piano ballad. I love you, but I can't trust you anymore. It's solo Prince and his piano. And then he's and then he turns to me and he's like, okay, it's in G. And I'm like, no, you didn't. No, you did not just say that to me. <laughs> like, first of all, <laughs> self-taught little Buffalo folk singer chick doesn't know G from cue for i'm like uh, okay this is the part where you think i know how to play guitar like people who you know know what the fifth and the fourth and the tonic or whatever the hell all that is so i'm really you know so i'm like walking into the tracking room the other side of the glass you know his old school paisley park studio and i'm crying i'm crying because now I'm going to crash and burn in front of my hero, you know, and it's horrible. And I'm, I'm paralyzed with fear and I'm picking out and I'm, 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 I'm fiddling on my guitar as I'm walking, you know, like, okay, that note seemed to fit in what I just heard. Bing, boom, bing. Okay. There's four, there's four notes that I think go in G and Lordy (laughs) knows I just played those four in that order and tried to, and it was, and he just, it was one take, and then he was like, I'm rolling back to the bridge before I even, uh, and uh, and then it was over in four wow. minutes, and he was like, great, let's go watch the fireworks. It happened to be the 4th of July, too, and, and then he sent me this note saying he was over the moon with what I played, and I was like, what? I could tell from the moment you walked in the room. your dress you had on that wasn't your perfume and what happened to the ring that I gave you what am I to assume I love you but I don't trust you anymore 
I mean, wow. I guess I, I succeeded at least in the less is more. You know, I, I wished I had had time to think about it and listen as I do and hear what it is that I hear and want to offer. But no, I was on the hot seat. That's what he loves to do to people. And somehow I didn't get ejected. <laughs> I'm just grateful for that. Amazing. Um, well, the 2001 double album, Reveling Reckoning, has two fabulous songs that sit next to one another on the track lineup. Gray is deeply personal and confessional, while Subdivision is a societal observation about white flight and the urban communities that are left behind. Um, and to me, these two songs sitting side by side are a fantastic representation in a nutshell of who you are as a writer. Um, you know, we've touched on the fact that you're not afraid to reveal your own soul and you're not afraid to tackle big social issues. And the line between those, as you've said, is kind of blurred that it all comes from from a kind of similar place. Um, I'm curious when you sit down to write, um, you know, when inspiration strikes, do you kind of think in terms of like, OK, today I need to really write something about myself or today I saw something on the news that I, I need to address. Like, do you, do you sort of categorize the songs in any way in terms of this is my personal statement versus this is what needs to be said? Or is, does it all just kind of blur and, and come from that, that same place inside you? Yeah, no, I don't consciously um, bring that much sort of strategy or intent intention, I guess it's, it's really, just what what I'm moved, what I am moved to express, um, and I and I suspect that the less I think about it and try to do something, the better. So I, the only thing I must admit that I try to do, and I've been flirting with this for a few decades now because I'm getting old and tired, and and if <laughs> and if I that every single time I sat down with my guitar in the last 10 years, for sure, I would just write a slow loping three, four, <laughs> all mm, songs right. forevermore will be very slow dirges in three, four, unless I make my, I have to shake myself like, no bitch, you do not want to walk on stage and make a show of all dirges. That's, that's, that's a, that you're going to make your job suck. So write, come on, get up, jog, run around, get your pulse up, look alive, you know, write something jaunty. Why don't you, you know, because <laughs> it's, it's just funny how yeah, the energy of my home life and, you know, even uh, back before the pandemic and touring was still happening and I come home and I just fall out, you know, so the writing mm. process becomes something only done in recovery, you know. So um, right. these days it's it's hard to write, you know, uh, a, a rabble rousing, you know, fist in the air. I, I have to remind myself, Ani, your job is to go out in the world and inspire people and energize them. And so you're going to need some songs. So, you know, that's the one thing that comes into my mind only because I, I just know myself. I would just end up with all these waltzes. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, 
as you've evolved as an artist, you have continued to release uh, amazing albums that cover increasingly wider ground in terms of influences and explorations, including Reprieve, Red Letter Year, Which Side Are You On, and, and Binary. But you also ventured into the world of memoir, and you released your book, No Walls and the Recurring Dream, in 2019. You know, you've written plenty of lyrics and poetry over the years, and, and we're going to have Scott do the spoken word version at some <laughs> But... Um, in what ways was writing narratively about your own life? How was that a new experience in terms of, of flexing different creative muscles? I mean, it's a real different thing to try to communicate something in four minutes versus then sort of taking the boundaries away and say, okay, I'm, I'm just going to explore this, this narrative uh, about my own life. Oh, so different. So different. I feel that... Uh, hundreds of songs and 30 years of making four-minute songs and three minute and little skinny columns of poems it, it prepared me not for such an endeavor. <laughs> it was like, what is this? This is also writing. Like this is this is Greek. This to me, this experience. You know, like I, uh, you know, I feel uh, I was expressing at the time, you know, that songwriting, I think when it's best is like an event, you know, um, you align yourself with something that comes through you, you know, something in the universe wants to come through you and out of you and, and you, and you find a moment and you find your instrument and you find, and you, and it happens and it, and it pulls together. Yes. There's often a lot of reworking, there's preparation for that moment. There's, oh, let me dig in the journal and say, oh, that idea, right. And then, oh, wait, maybe that little, but there is still an event to it. Um, and I don't know, writing a book was like whittling to me. It's like it's an endless series of moments that all felt like tick, 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 tick. It was just like, what am I, what is this? Well, I, it was hard for me to gauge if it was good or bad or up or down or you know it's like I didn't really even know you know yeah it was a new thing new new context new format deeper way deeper into the exposure and vulnerability thing that I had been already known for and then now it's like oh that was nothing compared to write complete sentences about your life and what happened use the words mom brother you know it was just like oh what am I doing it was terrifying on every level and I had Mm. you know days and whole weeks and months where I felt okay okay i Something, there's there's a moment, I feel that, I feel it, I feel it, I think I'm, and then there was whole months where I was like, oh my God, what did I get myself into? I can't, I, what am I doing? This is a joke. I'm a joke. Uh, who cares? Who cares about me? Why am I saying all, what, what you know, and, and in retrospect, uh, unfortunately, I can uh, say that I, I sort of end up more in that latter space of, oh, my God, did I really do that? 
what, why, why did I do that? What, you know, I, I really don't know now that it's been uh, probably a few years since I was staring at that manuscript night after night. And I, I've, 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 my amnesia is kicking in, but I, I wonder like, what did I say? And what, <laughs> am I going to survive? Why did I do that? Um, well, coming back to your new album, I, I want to ask about the track Confluence, which is an instrumental with this really great, I get kind of Isaac Hayes vibes from that, you know, with the strings and the flutes and the percussion. This is obviously a very different world than an artist alone on stage with an acoustic guitar. Um, and, you know, you're somebody who has uh, received a lot of acclaim and attention even in this interview for your lyrics. And then now you're you're expressing something in this instrumental w- without lyrics at all, and, and I wonder, you know, when you've gotten so used to writing songs and communicating a certain way, was there ever a point in putting out an instrumental where you thought, oh, should I put some kind of like little chorus on this, or should I do something, or or was it did it just feel satisfying to say I'm going to let the music speak? Yeah, it felt satisfying, um, and actually. Uh... For one of these days, if I live long enough, I think I'm going to make an instrumental record just to really fuck mm. with their heads. <laughs> you know, I, I've been thinking for a few decades now, especially again, when I used to hang out with my guitar all the time, you know, when I was free to do that. I was making up songs. I was playing, you know, instrumental songs all the time, all the time. And... And I thought, man, what a fun challenge it would be. I I was thinking like so much of my music along my songs that have lyrics and that I'm known for is like about shaking people, you know, shake awake, get wake up, wake up, you know. And (laughs) then I I, what I want to do, what I hope someday maybe to do is to make a record there where there's no words and there's no. And it's the opposite. I want to make a record for people to fall asleep to. <laughs> and, uh, you know, instrument based on the acoustic guitar. But wait, maybe I can just fuck around with all kinds of sounds and instrument. And, and yeah, completely liberate myself from this game that I've been in for all these decades of telling stories and trying to make a change, a positive change in my society or in myself or, you know, or all of that struggle, all of that work, like to just, to just play and to soothe myself and to not open Mm. my mouth and to not bare my soul, but to just revel in the guitar. Uh, And um, yeah, Confluence, like, you know, that was... Uh, one of the two instrumental pieces on the new record, and uh, it's it's a reflection of the beautiful musicians that joined me on this record and their voices their, their, that they have with their instruments. You know, it started out with just that guitar groove, um, that sort of meditative guitar groove that... Um, and that's what I brought to everybody. And I said, let's jam, you know. And so I just sat on the groove. There's a little B section. 
And everybody just played along and created this magical place, you know. And I mm. think I did tell people, I, I, I'm going to, I think I'm going to write, you know, a poem and I'll, I'll probably speak a poem over this. And that was probably my intention as we were recording it. And then I thought just a, an inkling of what I was just talking about. Maybe this poem doesn't, or this record doesn't need one more poem. You know, maybe it needs a breath, you know, me, especially. Hmm. And then, you know, I put that that piece of music confluence after that song simultaneously, which talks about I live in two different worlds. You know, this world that I'm talking in and moving through and engaging with and blah, blah, blah. And then there's my internal world, which hmm. is so different and so, you know, and so I so that 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 the 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 sort of instrumental journey of confluence that sort of meditative space I thought reflected that what that song simultaneously the song before it was talking about just going in to yourself and fi and fi and taking a breath and grounding grounding again so that you can go back to the into the ring yeah. so that I left it like that Another standout track on the album is Shrinking Violet, which has this haunting Southern vibe and the unsettling lyrics. Yes, I sleep with one eye open and I hold my breath till dawn. I'm no shrinking violet, but I've got my head screwed on. You stood over me with a knife and you tried to take my life. It's no comfort you don't remember. It's no comfort that you've moved on. You stood over me with a knife and you tried to take my listen to that track and I'm just like whoa what um mm. what what's the inspiration for for that song it's so powerful yeah that was a tough one to 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 sing and you know it's funny when I went to Durham and got together with this crew of strangers and got to know them over the course of four days uh, I didn't want to, I had, I had recorded that song at home and it was sort of secretly by myself and, and I thought, I'll just use that recording. Oh, you, I don't want to play that one again. You know, <laughs> like I couldn't, I don't know. That one's good. I think that one I'll just play, I don't know, on my ukulele alone. I, I don't, but Brad made me, he's like, no, just, just go play it. Just go. Just go sing it again. Um, and I'm glad he did because what the other musicians brought to this recording is really beautiful and makes me feel so accompanied um, in it. Um, yeah, what is that song saying? Well, it's that is metaphoric. I, I can reassure you the knife to the throat but that's how it felt. Um, hmm. It's about, I mean, candidly, I, me and my partner struggled for years. I, I'm the breadwinner in the family. I leave town serially for weeks at a time. 
we got to this place where not only do we have one kid, now we have two kids. We have a new baby. He's a screaming baby. He screams when his eyes are open. He is screaming. He doesn't, and his yeah. eyes are, he doesn't sleep. And he does. Then we get a new puppy and he's shitting everywhere. And it's a, it's mayhem. And I, I'm, I'm still going on tour. We're barely mm. managing as a unit. And now I have to go make the money. And it got so hard that we were aimed for divorce and we were aimed for a struggle over custody. And what I was being confronted with from my partner felt that's the way it felt. Um, when you mm. are feel that your children will be kept from you. Um, so we did not break up. We did not get divorced. Um, I, we still love each other. And somehow, though I wrote, I was well into writing the breakup album <laughs> with this new album. Um, it came without the breakup. So, um, yeah, that's one of the more personal, that's the most deeply personal place that I felt scared to share uh, hmm. uh, on this new record. Um, just, yeah, because I, I feel like the me that's singing in it is paralyzed with fear, is, is weak and small. I show myself being afraid and small, and that's not usually the face I put on in public. So anyway, yeah. there it is, nestled in the center of the record, just sort of holding its breath. Yeah, I think that what you just shared um, was real uh, and, and honest, but also hopeful. You know, you say, you know, we we did stay together. We did find a way through. And I think that what you experienced is very much reflected on this record. You know, Revolutionary Love is a real and a, a raw, honest record in a lot of ways, but there's also this light and this hopefulness, um, you know, this call to connection and unity throughout the album and the way that that works on, you know, the personal relationship level and the society level, um, it's just very cool. And, and it's been, uh, a real honor for us to talk with you today about, you know, not just the new album, but your, your process and, and your career. And, um, we obviously both very much, uh, admire what you do. So thank you so much for, oh. for taking the time to, to talk with us. And, uh, you know, this has been great. Well, I'm so happy to hear you sum up the record that way, because that's what I hoped. That is exactly what I hoped is that that would be the feeling you were left with that there's hope yeah. <laughs> that there's yeah. there's going to be a way through and we're going to find each other so so you know you did what you set out to do on this record yeah that's, that's always nice <laughs> <laughs> i win again <laughs> thanks so much to you both for this opportunity in this conversation thanks for listening we'd love to stay connected with you so please take a moment to subscribe to songcraft via apple podcasts spotify or your podcast app of choice if you like the show, we ask you to consider rating us and leaving us a good review. Word of mouth is important, and letting other potential listeners know what you think of the show helps us tremendously. You can also sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com, 
and find out how to help support us at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. And you can follow us on social media by searching for Songcraft Conversations on Instagram and Songcraft Show on Facebook and Twitter. And finally, be sure to check out our friends at the American Songwriter Podcast Network at americansongwriter.com. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support.